Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to Zero Today. I am your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA. Here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation promoting a knowledge that is engaging and transforming and helping you, our listeners, knowing and impacting the world around you. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey on all of our social media, on Facebook, the Zero Network, um, on Twitter, at Zero Radio, and all over. We're listed wherever you, you can hear a podcast or broadcast, you can hear us. And we appreciate you for doing so. I'm honored today to have a wonderful guest with me today. Uh, I want to say Dr. Andrew. <laughs> you don't have to say that. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something. My response to people, Jesus uh, gave me, what, can I just talk a minute? I, absolutely. Go right ahead. Okay. Jesus um, I told us a parable of the Good Samaritan. And he made a really a significant point in this parable. If you've been to Sunday school or, you, you, you know, when you were a kid, then you know this. People may not know it as much as they used to, but enough people know it. And his point was that you can't judge a religious system by, its, by the top people. The, uh, the bishops or whatever, he said, I think he made a very valid point. He said, this Samaritan, this outcast, for, for those people at that time, Samaritans were the bottom of the barrel. With, with all due respect, they got treated like the blacks did in the United States for some years. Hopefully that's coming to an end. Uh, I think it is, but I suppose there are people that are prejudiced or something. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway... Can you Go bring ahead. your camera over? You're, you're slightly out of out of uh, out of the screen. Can you bring your camera over just a bit? There you Hold are. On. Hold there on. You. Okay. Yes, that's much better. Okay, fine. They told this parable, and his point was that a person he said he was founding a new religion, essentially, in this parable. And he said, this man, this Samaritan, this outcast of the Palestinian society, he was the new type of person he wanted to be in his church. He was, he was this outcast, this, this person who was the bottom of the barrel. He was saying to people, this guy is the new, is the new believer. This guy is the new Christian. This guy, we're not going to judge a person by their facial religious statements. I believe this. I believe that. He rejected that idea. He rejected forms, any kind of forms, I think. Jesus rejected forms, formality. And like I said, look at the people he chose. This, this parable of the Good Samaritan is he saying, this man you think is the bottom of the barrel, 
This man in reality is the top of the gun. So he was really informing people of what of a great truth. Absolutely. I think he was. He was. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, can you tell my listeners a little bit more about yourself? I, 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 I've studied up on you. I, I know you. I mean, you are the type of uh, persons guys like me aspire to be. You're academic. You're uh, engaged in uh, society. You're a believer, but also you know you're you're a published author all of <laughs> you you're at the at the top <laughs> that's a very nice thing to say but of course according to jesus thinking he chose a couple of fishermen to be his disciples not the top but maybe the people that were perceived as the bottom fishermen tax collector Tax collectors were despised. They were agents of the Roman government. They were collecting tax, tax from, taxes from the Jews. His thinking is, you. I, it's very nice of you to say that, but Jesus' thinking on this issue is radically different. It really is. Remember it was said to him, you probably know this Bible verse, who is this man that eats with publicans and sinners? I cannot understand why he is associating with garbage. I couldn't understand it. Absolutely. And they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything could come out of this bag water? You know? But uh, the, these are the criticisms that were launched at Christ. They couldn't understand why this man would want to associate with the bottom of society. But maybe he didn't think they were the bottom. That's the issue. Let me tell you about myself. I have an MDiv degree from Princeton Theological Center. I functioned as a Lutheran pastor. I'm still very much involved in the church. I have a law degree. I functioned as a lawyer. And I, I'm resuming my legal career in two or three months. And uh, I am, as you say, I've written books, Christian books and legal books. The books are, the books have sold well. It says in the Christian worldview. It says in faith, culture, politics, and philosophy. Essays on the a book on the parables, a book on law, select legal topic, volume one and two. And most lately, I published a commentary on all 150 Psalms. For me, the Psalms are the are the heart of the biblical message. They are Jewish Hebrew religious poetry. They are fantastic. Anybody who has not read the Psalms has, has missed out. They are so deep and so profound. And have so much to say to us, every one of us. You can't can't read the Psalms enough. So I wrote this book, and uh, I also am writing other books on blogs, two books of blogs, literary, political, and uh, logical. Those books are coming out soon. I'm publishing a book on the Book of Job in the near future. Job was not Jewish; he was an Edomite, and that that particular book. He wasn't one part of the Hebrew culture. And um, how that book got into the Bible, I, I really don't know. But it's, it's a book modeled on a Greek play. It's very profound. It starts out with jo Job uh, being told that, that Satan is walking up and down the earth, and that he persecutes Job. Uh, this is another book of the Bible. You know, Doctor, that 
we lived in a time when people knew this. I think so, don't you think? I think so, yes. More so than today. I mean, for example, a, something like Jesus' disciples or, uh, or whatever, or uh, you know, creation story in Genesis. These things, kind of everybody knew it. Uh, if you, we, I went to Sunday school. That's what they told me. I memorized the first and the 23rd Psalm in Sunday school. That's what people did then, you know? Society has changed. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's for the better. Actually, I'm very, I welcome other faiths and other ways of thinking. Because those faiths, to me, can, can inform me and expand my horizons. I'm writing a book on the miracles in the Bible. Uh, I am, I've written a, uh, I'm writing a book on the, of my blogs, uh, which have been visited by many uh, foreign countries all over the world. And uh, I am writing other books. I've, write, I've written a couple of journal articles, not to bloat myself up. I don't really feel that way. Yeah. But these articles have been bought by the, uh, by the United States Supreme Court in one instance and by the uh, State Department and a few others. So people are reading my stuff. I'm happy about it. I'm not particularly arrogant about it when I talk about this. I don't think anybody likes uh, an egotistical, arrogant people. You think so, Doctor? I know they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a lot to learn. And uh, I, you know what I particularly learn from? I particularly like to talk to kids. Because huh? kids have, are very, very smart. Don't you think? They are. They are. They're very bright. And they uh, listen to what you have to say. And they, uh, you can have a fantastic relationship with a kid. More so than with an adult, because they're honest. You talk to them, they give a response. They're honest. Adults put up a front. Don't you think? <laughs> I know from experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you. I like kids. Uh, and so I also like um, as I say, I'd like to dialogue with my Muslim brothers and sisters on my faith. I'd like to hear about their faith. I welcome them. And who knows, as Jesus said about the Samaritan, maybe these people are as Christian or more Christian than other people. Like he said about the Samaritan, this guy is more of a religious leader than the priest and the Levite that passed him by and didn't uh, help this man that was had been injured. The Samaritan, so I have to say that the true Christian may be found anywhere in any religion. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, but does that come across as a sense of universalism uh, to a degree? It, it, it does. I'm not saying it does attend to that. But I don't, I'm not, I don't really agree with that. Uh, any more than I agree with the idea that everybody's going to be saved. Uh, there's, a, there's a theory that everybody is going to be saved. That's, that's wrong. Because Jesus, unfortunately, doctor, this is something people don't want to know about, don't want to hear about. He really talks about hell quite a bit. Doesn't he? He does. He does. He gives a lot of warnings about it. He warns people, like in Matthew 23, he says, if you don't uh, visit people in prison or give them clothing when they were naked or, or help them and love your neighbor, he says, uh, you're going to be in hell. 
I hope I'm not there. I sincerely hope I may deserve to be there looking at my life and its inadequacy. I may deserve to be in hell. I think anybody who takes an honest look at themselves, I'm getting really honest about this. Anybody who takes a look at themselves is going to find there isn't much good there. I don't think so. You wrote a treatise on, uh, I want to make sure I say it right, uh, Essays, Christian Rev, Worldview. Yes. Yep. Uh, yep. I did write a book. And um, you cover quite a bit of philosophical, philosophical topics in there, arguments that you presented, and I skimmed through it. Um, where do you think we are in this contemporary, particularly American Christianity? Where do you think we are now in, um, in a Christian worldview? Where, where okay, you... let, me, let, me, let me handle that question, Doctor. Uh, the America, in many ways, there are two factors you have to understand about Christianity. Many people don't know what it is. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. They have an idea. Mr. They, they see Christianity as Jesus being a nice guy, basically. He's, he helps people. He's kind of people. He's the kind of person you want to know. But I'm afraid that's not what he says about himself. And that's not Christianity. It's a part of it. But it is, the main part is Jesus makes a claim. And it's a fantastic claim. And if you want to be in the church, if you want to believe in Christ, you have to accept this claim. He claims to be God. He really does. He claims to do miracles, claims he raised Lazarus from the dead, he, he raised other people from the dead, he, he walked on water, it's reported, now you don't have to believe this, people don't have to believe this, they can say it's a big lie, and I don't know, could be, but I don't think, I don't think it is. He made claims about himself, these claims are extremely significant, and the main claim that he deals with that we are told we have to deal with, and this is the Christian faith, he claims to be God and offer eternal life. That is the, the nub of the Christian thinking. He tells us how to be better as people. He tells us to love our enemies, love our neighbors. He makes tremendous moral demands on us, huge, huge moral demands on us, that nobody in the world has ever, ever, I don't think I can love my enemies. I don't think so. Hmm. I, I doubt it. And then he said, uh, if you look at a woman with lust, you're committing adultery. It's another thing. He's really pushing the envelope, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's pushing yeah. the envelope. He's telling us, you got this. And he says that. He says, when you're angry, you murder your brother. He really means anger leads to murder. That's really what he means when he says that. And he's saying, when you're looking at a woman with lust, he said, that leads to adultery. And by the way, he, by this statement, uh, by looking at a woman with lust as adultery, he is raising the status of women. In the Ten Commandments, this is 3,500 years ago, Doctor, he said not to commit adultery. He, that, at that time, women were at the, were chattels. They were, they were nothing in that society. Yet he raised them up and said, you cannot 
abuse them. You can't walk out of them. You can't commit adultery. He raised the status of women hugely. The status more, moreover, he claims that he's born of a virgin. He has a human mother. This is a man who has raised the status of women immeasurably, I think, uh, in his life. He had women followers, uh, a lot of them. They were at the empty tomb. He raised the status of Christianity, raised, I think. We're not perfect as Christians. We're sinners. I know that. I'm a sinner. I know I'm inadequate. I know it very well, doctor. But I still know that he raises, he, he raises the moral ante substantially. He says, pray for those who persecute. It's another moral demand, a fantastic demand. Who is, what kind of a guy is this? He's just a nice guy? I don't think so. He, he tells us, you got to do this. If you want to be saved, he says, you have to raise your moral compass substantially. He says, you can't be angry, otherwise it's murder. He says, you can't look at a woman, otherwise it's adultery. He says, pray for those who pray. He says, love your enemies, love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is tough enough. Uh, I suppose it's easy. Well, do you think, let me ask you this, doctor. Do you think it's easy to love somebody you don't know? Oh, I know it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You don't know that person. Uh, so, um, also, another thing. Our, who, do, who do people in our society love? Good-looking? Nice clothes? Nice car? Do they like the dirt bags in, in, in dirty clothes? Do they like the guys who have no money? Do those people get much love? Not that I'm aware of it. You think women love guys without money? No. <laughs> you think women like guys who, who who don't have nice clothes, who are dirty? No. <laughs> Some of them might don't. <laughs> so why, why is it? Why is it women make a judgment on that basis? I mean, I don't judge a person by their appearance. I'll be honest with you. I really don't. But why is it many women? do operate on that wavelength. It's true, isn't it? It is. It's rather unfortunate. Do you think they're making a mistake? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> sometimes, you know? sometimes it's a good, it's a good way to judge uh, how, how they'd be treated, I suppose. Uh, well, they're gonna, well, first off, a guy has nice clothes and he looks good. Are you, isn't that person going to be assumed to have money? Yes. So that's really why he may be favored. Your, ca your camera went back over to, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you move it back over again? Yeah, yeah. hold on, yeah, oh, I got it now. Sorry, hold on, let me move the chair. Okay, I'm, I'm in there. Just a little bit more. One more? Yeah, a little more. Okay? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Well, I don't like to judge people how they look. Uh, because uh, I've met some very nice people who've been very dirty and disheveled. I've met some very nice homeless people. Some of them are very nice people. No? Yes. Yeah, they are. Uh, you could be homeless for a variety of reasons. You could have lost your job, right? Absolutely. Could happen, that could happen to anybody. Or you could uh, got sick. 
or you lost all your money, anything can happen, right? Absolutely. So being homeless may not be your fault. How do you, let me ask you this, doctor, how do you make a judgment on a person? How do you assess a person? Not knowing them all that well, but how do you, how do you draw a conclusion about a person's character or who they are as persons? I think it's, it's I think we do it all the time through our own biases. And, yeah. and most times we are incorrect. Uh, you think people judge people on their race? Absolutely. I, I know from experience they do. They do? Oh, yes. Do you think they, I mean, do you think blacks are categorized as not too bright, maybe? Or uh, whatever they want to say about them? Yeah. Blacks are kind of uh, targeted in that way. I agree. I completely agree. And it just brings me up to this the question um, uh, when it comes to this idea of critical race theory. Uh, you've been academic. You haven't published in one of the one, one of the most prestigious journals, academic journals. And again, having your work referenced not just by the State Department but the Supreme Court. From your perspective, um, in the statement you just made about the perception of blacks and their their intelligence and their efficacy to improve their lot. What, what do you think of critical race theory? And well, could you, could you, I've heard that term used a lot. And I'm not sure I understand it fully. So I'm could, glad you under, could you explain to me critical race theory? Well, critical race theory, as I understood it prior to all this stuff in that's now, is uh, the idea of systemic uh, systemic undermining of black uh, upward progression in the academic area in academia that's where it started the idea that um, black folk black academics were not provi provided the same opportunity or afforded the same opportunities uh, for major within major institutions or if they did, were afforded those opportunities, it was linked to some other systemic issue, you know, like we need the token black person. Um, and then it, it also reflected the idea of how academia, the, you know, the sense of academics seeing black, other black academics, that they were, you know, the exception to the rule that not all, not all black persons could achieve such education or things of that nature. And, but now it's, it's, uh, it's been conscripted to the whole idea of the totality of inefficacy for black people altogether, that, um, that blacks under the influence of systemic Oppression educationally and socially are basically lifelong victims of some sort. I think it's true. I think blacks have been categorized and, well, yes, I think it's true. Uh, for centuries, uh, blacks have been pushed down. 
and they have, I think, the effect of this prejudice for the black, for the black community <laughs> is they come to believe it about themselves. <laughs> they are so persecuted and so told they are dumb or, or not smart or whatever you want to say. They're told there's no, you tell a person that often enough, and they come to believe it. You know, and that is the issue of the black community. For, for years, for hundreds of years, they were systematically put down, pulled down, told they were no good, whatever. And um, yes, you're right. I think you're right in the statement. I think they, there has been a systemic attempt to undermine the black community. I think it's true. I think it's still true. I think you, nobody's going to admit, nobody, there's nobody in this country that's going to come to terms with this prejudice. But it's true and it's real. And uh, I don't think, first of all, I think any, everybody has intellectual ability, regardless of their race. And the same thing was done to women, really. They were uh, told you can only be at home. You can't, you can't do anything in the workforce. They were told the same thing. No? Yeah. I, I, and I'm, I agree with that. And I think part of it, a contributing factor for me, as I see it, is the exposure to those who have actually become successful. Um, like, you know, going back to the academic sphere, um, we're, we're only told about a handful of academics black academics who were successful, one being uh, the proponent one being um, W.E.B. Dubois. That's right. And we don't hear about others, but I grew, I went to an all-black school, high school, junior high school. I went to a historically black college and university. What black college you go to, Howard? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I attended uh, Arkansas, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. Uh, which is the only land grant uh, black institution in Arkansas. Did you feel you were helped by going to all black schools? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> there is no experience like going to an HBCU, none like it. Um, I did grad school at a, a predominantly white institution and it was almost like a shell shock for me. Oh yeah? Uh, yeah, because one, uh, even though we had a small, diverse population at the university where I attended undergrad. We did. Uh, but I went just a few miles up the road, and it was a completely different environment, you know. Um, and I, I was the only black person in my department and in my, uh, in my major at the time. They did not have, uh, and they only had one black university, one black professor. Well, no, they had two black professors. And, you know, they already had their PhDs and they were already doing what they were doing. But I was the only black person who had been in that department in so long. It, they didn't really know what to do. Right. Uh, and all the, some of the white students were just surprised. You know, they would, I experienced that sense of, wow, I'm surprised that you're here. You know, what are you doing? I, I, you know, I, it was it was an interesting experience. I I didn't suffer discrimination, but it was like I was uh, a standout. You know, I stood out because you know, wow, I can't believe black person is here. 
in this department doing this. Mm. Well, you think that the black community is kept at, is some, on some subtle level uh, disqualified from getting into the top schools? Um, on some subtle level. They don't want them there. I, yes, on some subtle level, yes. Uh, and it's amazing to me in the way that we're matriculating from these uh, more and more from more prestigious universities and undergraduates and as graduates uh, in graduate departments across the country. It, it's amazing to me that we have we are doing that. But there is still this sense, and I talk to a lot of current graduate students. I teach, I teach at an undergraduate HBCU. Um, what is the name of that place? I teach at Wiley College. Oh, you teach at Wiley College? Yeah, I teach there. And um, one of the things that I see is those students are aspiring to get beyond that undergraduate. And mm. the ones who, who have gotten out and are in graduate programs or have already entered some field, um, they, they, they're overwhelmingly successful. And they, they give credit to the university for their success, not just the academic part of it, but the, the other part that comes along with it that a lot of students at black university, you know, that just that black college experience. Uh, but then you get to institutions, uh, predominantly white institutions, as you get there, and while there shouldn't be that sense that we don't really want you there, we really want you here, it's still there. Because mm -hmm. there's that idea that you're not going to perform at the level that some other uh, ethnic group will perform. And I think it's done more subtly now, but it still exists. Do you think that we're moving to a society where the black community will be represented in the uh, top level fields such as medicine, law, PhDs, more black PhDs. I think there'll be more black PhDs. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm very confident. And we have, you know, when it comes to things like law, we do have uh, lawyers in the forefront like Ben Crump, um, who is taking on his national profile as, you know, with particularly uh, persons who have been um, uh, victims of uh, predominantly crime, crimes by uh, white people in, in so many ways. Uh, and we have others, you know, I think about the legal institutions that are hiring uh, great minds. Mm. But we still have a long way to go. We still, we are still, uh, we still are in need of black leadership at that level, you know. We do. You do need black leadership. I'm waiting to see more black presidents at, uh, or chancellors. Yeah. White School presidents, yeah. I'm waiting for that, too. That, uh, that, let me ask you this. This is a this is a loaded question. It's going to be a tough question out here. I thought I was doing the interview, but this is good. I, well, yeah, I just want to ask you this, because <laughs> every black person I know has had to deal with uh, are you resentful against the whites? No, I'm not resentful. I'm not resentful against the whites. Ang uh, angry, angry. Uh, no, no. Uh, but you you admit you were treated badly by the Caucasians for a long time. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I can admit that about myself, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents. Um, seeing don't, my you, don't you feel my angry about that treatment? Uh, no, because, uh, when, for example, when I saw my grandfather being called a boy by a, a, a kid calling my grandfather a grown man boy. He did? Uh, how, how old was this kid? This kid couldn't have been more, you know, he was younger than me, so. So I was <laughs> I was a teen at the time, so maybe he was preteen. And how did your grandfather respond to it? In kind, you know. Uh, apparently, they he, you know he took it as a. I guess he had some kind of relationship with that child that it just rolled off his back, and he just you know he was very familiar with the child uh, with the family, so it was I guess mm. it wasn't anything offensive to him. I took it as such, but. Uh, I find myself not really having a reason to be angry, but if I do have that underlying uh, subconscious anger, I, I I transmute that into some form of action that will be more benevolent, beneficial to uh, the people I serve in my community, you know, in the black community. I know, and I think that part of this issue, you know, with the riots and things like that, I felt that rage, that angst, especially after George Floyd and all the other incidents that happened in 2020. That's right. I felt all of that. I really did. I thought the anger and the rage was misdirected, though, you know, um, because a lot of those persons who were acting out had not directly experienced some of the things that I experienced or my grandparents or great-grandparents experienced. They had not, but they, you know, it's the assembly of the semblance that, is occurring, especially with encounters with the police. I know from my personal experience, you know, I still have that sense. Like if I get pulled over by the police, right? Yeah, I, I got to be That is true. One time, <laughs> I, uh, I was, uh, I was with a black man in a car. He was driving perfectly okay. He wasn't doing anything. He was pulled over. Now I'm telling you that that happens a lot. Oh yeah, black men. Black men are pulled over, and they're even worse treated. If they have a nice car. There's more likely they'll be pulled over having a nice car, right? Absolutely. So, uh, one time I was uh, in in Brooklyn and uh, with a black man, a client of mine, and um, I took note of the fact that of this phenomenon of black men being pulled over. And I think it's terrible. I think it's a disgrace. But most of the time, they haven't done anything. They haven't done anything. Right. And uh, I, as I said, I mean, uh, let me ask you this. How do you feel about the police and the black community? Do you believe the police have a, have a thing Against the black community. Uh, uh, let me let me do a quick quick uh, interlude, and I'll answer the question. For those of you who are listening, or wherever you're listening, if you're just joining us, I have on my show uh, guest Andrew Shackin. That's it. All right, and um, uh, he is he's an author. He's a uh, business consultant. He is a lawyer. He's a uh, 
off. Uh, he's 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 just an all around great guy, and I'm honored to have him as our guest. And that's who we are joined by. If you're listening, uh, wherever platform you're listening, if you haven't done so, I want you to go ahead and like this, uh, like it wherever you're listening from, <laughs> subscribe okay. wherever you're listening from, and um, if you haven't done so, go to my Patreon, uh, Lorenzo T. Neal, and sign up to become a patron and support what we do here on Zero, uh, the Zero Radio Show. Uh, all right, back to your question. Um, do you believe that the, 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 police, the, the, police, the police community has a problem, has, has a personal 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 antithesis against black men. I don't believe they have a personal antithesis uh, or we would not have black police officers. That's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, but and, and I do have a brother uh, who serves uh, in our hometown on the local police department, so I am a little bit biased toward that. I do believe that there is a there's a bias uh, police have through justified me- reasons of seeing black and brown men in particular uh, in a certain way. Uh, and the way they police them has has uh, has always been complicated, you know, because when it depends on where you are in the urban area. And I know in the rural area, you know, sometimes the, the law enforcement have a personal relationship with the black community. And I, I, you know, I heard stories growing up of how how they used to police back in the day. You know, they knew the black community, they knew the black leaders. And if a crime happened, they were able to, you know, they were able to work and police that equitably. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and in some rural case, where I am in Mississippi, in, in many rural areas, that's still the case. Are you in Mississippi? Yes, I'm. I'm in Mississippi. And let me ask you this: You're. I knew a guy. Uh, it was a resident of Mississippi. I had a case with him, and I went down there to Starkville. Starkville is a little, little small town. Yes. And uh, he uh, said uh, that um, the residents of Mississippi have a have a have a a, a dislike. Of, they treat the black community badly. That's what he said. He said they, they have a hard time. Is that true? I I don't know. I, I can't say that they have a hard time. What I think is what, what we're seeing across the country is that as you have a greater influx of black leadership, a greater influx of black presence um, in areas that were once dominated by white that that gives them that sense of dissonance, that that sense of loss, and that's what they're reacting to. Um, it's not that they hate them; it's just that you know we're living in the neighborhoods they used to live in. We're attending the schools that were once exclusive to them. We're uh, going to stores and affording the lifestyle that was once exclusive to you know white communities and. While there still seems to be that sense of a a gap all across the board, educationally, financially, socially, politically, uh, that there still uh, is not as wide as it once was. Um, so you're saying that the black 
black, black community in Mississippi and other southern states, Alabama, Louisiana, has made progress. Tremendous progress. I know in Mississippi, you know, uh, about 75% of the municipalities have black leaders. You know, what about black mayors? There are black mayors in Mississippi? Black mayors, yes. A majority of the cities in Mississippi have black, black mayors. You know, from the small. How, do the, how does how does the white community handle this? They once had control. That is a good question. Some uh, some are a little bit more regressive. You know, they they're trying to get back to that that dominance, and others are just like, well, we'll just create our own community. <laughs> <laughs> is is there communication between blacks and whites in Mississippi? Is there is there interaction? Oh yeah. Definitely. There's a, there's a lot. Of, and I think Mississippi gets this bad, bad visual. Um, the, the diversity in the state is is wonderful. Um, and although we are a red state, you know, when it comes politically, we are a red state at the local level. And really, really, yeah, at, at, at pretty much statewide, we're more purple. We, you know, there's this there's this blended sense of of who we are, and a lot of people are trying not to go backwards. They're in, trying to be as intentional, white people are trying to be as intentional as possible to make sure that we're not too far to the to the left where we're overly liberal or progressive or and not too far to the right where we're ultra conservative and go back and you know, we regress. So there's that sense of a balance that's trying to happen is happening slowly you know we just changed the state flag uh you got the confederate thing off yes yes they voted <laughs> and it, they did it for two reasons one they did it because of all the racial tension that was happening that was not happening in mississippi that that was the interest of the thing you know they're riding in portland and seattle chicago and all those big cities but here in most of the southern states that same angst, and we had officer-involved shootings that never made the headlines, but we had the same type. You know, we didn't have that that response. Now we, they, people did respond to the other action, the actions in the other cities, uh, but when we had incidents of racial insensitivities or injustices here, there was a a great effort to make sure that you know it it, it all the people came together to make sure justice came forth. Um, so yeah, we're getting there, and uh, there are a lot of organizations that, are, again, are intent on making sure there's racial reconciliation occurring across the, the sphere. We got rid of the flag. The other reason was because, you know, money. Yeah. <laughs> the threat of the threat of SEC. You know, the threat of SEC not having games here. The threat. Uh, all other business and corporations that uh, are headquartered here, all the, you know, wanting to do business here, that was a great incentive. So let's get let's get another question to you because I want to know this because I don't I don't stereotype people in their political opinions. How does the black community, at least in Mississippi, feel about Trump? About they feel he's a, they think he's a racist or or not or about who? Trump. Uh, <laughs> well, of, I'm just curious. I'm sure I, there's I some blacks that like Trump. I, I think there's a general consensus that uh, 
a lot of black people think Trump had racist overtones, though he was not directly racist himself. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. He ascribed to, well, I won't say he ascribed to, but he just understood the base that got him elected. That's right. Um, and when he came, he came, Trump came to Mississippi to help dedicate our, our museums on Mississippi history and civil rights. And yes, there were some who did not want him there, but there were uh, quite a few blacks who were there in support, uh, including the the late uh, Charles Evers, who was the brother of the late Mega Evers, who was murdered, you know, in 1963, um, and along with some other notable black leaders. And I'm not sure if they, you know, some would say that they were sellouts, but the others understood, okay, this is the president, and whether he, whether he speaks this way or that way, this is an honor that he's here in our state, and he's doing this. Um, but for the most part, you know, blacks see him as they see a lot of black, a lot of white politicians. You know, you're mm -hmm. just going to talk what you're going to talk, and you might do what you say you're going to do, but for the most part, you're not. And so they saw him as, I think they see him as just another white politician. Right. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of black conservatives here in the state. There are black conservatives. Yeah. And so yeah, some there people, are. Actually. Some people say that that that's a oxymoron or uh, whatever it is, but uh, you know, blacks are more conservative socially than politically, and uh, if you throw issues, some of the social issues that are that are happening, uh, prime examples like the vaccine that's happening. You know, right. this whole I this whole controversy with black the vaccine and people who are not vaccinated, the largest population is among black people. And the reservations that they have are justified for all of us black people. We understand. Right. <laughs> we completely understand. And yet the persons who are raising the loudest voices when they say the cause of the new strain, blah, 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 are for unvaccinated. Forget that the greatest people who are reluctant to get that are people of color. And so, you know, they don't realize they're being racist in so many words. I don't like using that term. But but they are. So Well, I think you're right that Trump, the, the base that he appealed to were pretty conservative white That was his base. That was largely his base. Not all of it, but a lot of it was. So I think he that's who the people he appealed to, you know. So uh, you're right. But let me ask you this. How about interracial relationships? Men and women. Is it accepted? It should be. <laughs> I don't. I don't see why not. Uh, but you know, there. I'm sure there are black and whites who are <laughs> on either side of that. Um, it's becoming. It seems to be more popular now. Uh, Have I, you I, seen black couples and white and white women? Black men and white women. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the norm now it seems more it's more common than when i was younger you know 10 20 years back you wouldn't have seen it as much but now it's so much it's so common that uh that could be why some some white people are pushing back on this idea of you know this full sense of integration yeah let's talk a minute about the police uh, you, you said you had a brother who was a police officer? Uh, yes, I do. 
Um, so you, let me ask you this. Are you willing to make the statement that the police have a difficult job? Absolutely, they do. And do you think that they, um, that like with George Floyd, they make a judgment on a situation? The judgment could be wrong. Absolutely, they can. And, and um, yes, sometimes they do. But then so there. Well, what are you, you going to make of a police officer who are faced I do criminal law. I do criminal law. And they, they have to make arrests. Correct? Uh huh. And um, making an arrest presents, can present problems. That person can resist, right? Absolutely. So, what are you going to do with a, a police officer who's faced with a person? He happens to be black, maybe, whatever, black, could be white, who goes into his pocket uh, as if to get something in his pocket. What are you, you going to make of that? You know, and, and that's the interesting thing. Um, they have to make those quick second they do. decisions. And if they've been, if they've given the command to not move, put their hands up or all of that, and that person after so many times refuses that, that puts them in that difficult place. You know, that puts them in a difficult place of having to act and think later. How are they going to respond to a person they're trying to arrest who shoves his hands in his pocket and comes up with maybe some kind of piece of metal? What's that yeah. result are they going to make of this? They are going to re react in the way they've been trained to react. And if even if I were, even though I'm not a police officer, I'm quite sure if I were in that set <laughs> circumstance, I would definitely react. You know, would you? Would you? The question is, in that situation, do they have a right to use their weapon? I don't think so. That I, I think they do. You think they do? And largely, is because you know how we've been conditioned to see policing even in the black community and you know from children's cartoons to playing cops and robbers how we've been conditioned to see policing is one way versus how policing has evolved you know in this malicious style type of uh policing that we are experiencing in modern america I think it'd be difficult for them not to draw their weapon unless they had alternate weapons and we know now that more community uh, policing is doing that. They're trying to find alternative means of dealing with that without drawing their 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 gun. But you know, until until that that type of equipment comes across the you know the spectrum of uh, communities in America, you know, the only thing they can do is pull their weapon. What about using it? The guy puts it in his hand pocket, pulls up, pushes his, his finger in the pot. What is the police officer going to do? He's not going to react. <laughs> He's going to shoot. Is but he going to shoot? More than likely, I would assume. I, uh, I would assume that they would. Uh, I would hope that they would try to be. And there are cases we've seen, you know, where they've been less reactive and they've tried to you know, stand their ground, stand down, and allow that person to do it. And then there have been others where they've probably already been trigger happy or they have that rush 
and they react. Uh, I'm I'm pro I'm pro police. You are pro police. I'm pro police. You're a black I'm, conservative. You're a black conservative. <laughs> For the most part, I guess I am. I, I don't mind, you know. Uh, In this right, area, right? Yeah. You you feel the police that they have, as I said to you, sir. Uh, they are at a police officer is always at risk. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're not always. They have put it this way. They they have they are. Let me put it fairly. I don't want to stereotype anybody. I don't know because these people they're arresting may be perfectly okay people, not guilty of anything. But uh, the fact of the matter is that um, uh, they, first of all, are the police treated badly by the communities they police? They throw stones at them, they yell at them, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and again, it goes back to the perspective. A perception of what policing is in urban communities where I live, where I pastor, it's uh, you know, it is one of those communities where they don't feel safe even with police presence, and you know, um, so they're reluctant when the police comes to their house or to their space or to their street, even if a crime has been committed, <laughs> they're still they they're likely to be antagonistic towards police police officers, even if it's somebody they grew up with, they're still going to be in. Wouldn't you, or is there an element, at least, you're, you're a black man and you're, you're, you're pro-police. Uh, do you believe that uh, that um, the people in black communities welcome police protection? Yes, they do. They welcome it and they despise it at the same time. They do welcome it because they know that they're, uh, for the general, in a more general sense, that uh, they could do their own policing, but if they do their own policing, it would it would draw the ire of the larger population, particularly the white folk. You know, we know our communities better, but we can't police our communities because the way we would like to police them would not would be frowned upon. Um, but at the same time, they despise the police because they know the behavior of the police officers individually and collectively you know so they're likely they're less they'll welcome them to come and you know if there's a domestic dispute dispute of some kind they'll welcome them to try to handle it if there's a murder they'll welcome them to try to you know draw the scene up and at least pretend as if they're trying to find the culprit you know the perpetrator they'll welcome all of that those who are victimized would certainly do that, but it it's it's um like I said it's it's uh, it's it's a challenging thing for for urban communities to find that balance in policing. You know, you don't have beat cops like they did back in the day, mm. or the beat cops are riding around in the cars; they're not walking around the communities as much. So there's a lot of policing reform, and I'm I'm all for policing reform. I think it's necessary. I don't know if it's necess necessary as much as the federal level, at the federal level, as it is as the uh, state and local, um, because state and local know population better than the federal level does, and we know whatever is at the federal level 
uh, not only does it become highly regulated, but it also is uh, less likely to be as effective, you know. And we, Let me ask you this, Doctor. What do you think happened, as far as you can piece it together, with George Floyd? There was a great disconnect between the officer and his role. Um, as I understand it, there was some personal relations between those two. So it was likely that this that officer, and I'm glad he's arrested and I'm glad he's saving, serving time, but that officer just had to display his power in that moment. I have power over you. And the other officers, even though they may have uh, uh, had some type of empathetic moment for Floyd on that ground at that time, they too had that sense of, we have the power, we are controlling this, so it's not going to get out of hand. I believe that's how they, they were thinking. This is not going to get out of hand. This is, we're going to make sure we have control. We have the dominant power here. So we're not going to let our co-officer, you know, we're not, I'm not going to let our fellow officer do this. I, I want to believe that. And I, you know, this is speculation strictly on my part. But it, it all boils down to the sense of control. Who, Who's going to control who? And that man having his knee on his neck that long states that I'm I'm definitely in control of you in this moment. Nothing you can do. He choked him, didn't he? As what they say. And the drugs that he Floyd had in his body didn't help. Right. Okay. One final thing I'd like to get into. How is Mississippi is a is a Bible Belt state. It's a Bible Belt state, along with Georgia and Alabama, South Carolina. The Bible Belt. Is it still that way? Definitely still that way. It is. As a matter of fact, on our flag, we have "In God We Trust," and now, though it there was great protest, they they managed to get it on there. But um, do, uh, do people go go to church in Mississippi? In fairly large numbers. Yeah, definitely. Uh, even though it's virtual, they're still going to go. Uh, I'm interested to see how it's going to look once we're able to really return in person in full capacity after all we after we go through all of this. Um, do you have any last words to give to me of advice? I, I'm just admiring the fact that I get to talk to you at a uh, uh, person of your caliber, uh, intellectually, academically, um, it's an honor that you're on the show. But uh, I would like people want to, you know, listen. To, I know you have uh, podcast, blog talk, uh, uh, blog talk, blog show. Yeah, I have blog talk radio. About that, tell them your books. Uh, I, and like I say, I have one, and it's <laughs> I'm loving reading it. But you know, I'm the academic. But okay. <laughs> I'm tell, glad you liked it. Tell tell people how they can get in touch with you if they if they want to listen to your podcast, all of that, or read or your blog talk radio. All you got to do is you want to get in touch with me. First of all, the best and easiest way is to go on my email a dot s c h a t k i n forty eight at gmail dot com. Again, a dot forty eight gmail dot com. If you want to get on my website. And take a look at my books and blogs and learn all about me. It's Shatkin Show, S-C-H-A-T-K-I-N, show.com. Uh, 
you want to see my books. Uh, and um, the books are available on Amazon, available on BarnesandNoble.com, and on most and on the publishers, Roman Littlefield and Universal. I, I'm very happy that you're saying those nice things about me. Uh, I'm glad you feel that way, and I feel the same way about you. I enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was mutually enlightening. That's why I asked you all those questions. <laughs> I wanted to get your insights. I appreciate it so much. Okay. And I'm, again, I, I'm thankful to have you on my show. Uh, and uh, to my audience, wherever you're listening, please uh, go back, go out and check out his his uh, webpage, Shatland Show, Shatland Show. Show.com. Dot com and um, look him up. Um, you may, if you have your own show, you may want to have him on <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll try to get you on again and explore some more things. But thank you so much. I'm talking to my guest, Andrew Shatkin, and um, I'm glad to have you on and support him and all he, he does. And those you are listening, again, wherever you're listening on all our uh, our, our broadcasts is available on Blog Talk Radio. And wherever a podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. You can go on my website and you, over 4,000 people have visited those podcasts. I have people visiting my blogs from all over the world, reading my blogs and uploading them constantly. So uh, there's a lot of people who read my work and like it. Yes. And uh, so make sure you support him. Make sure you follow me on social media. And uh, if you have not done so, go to patreon.com, become a patron, and you can see the tiers on how you can how you can support uh, Zero Today, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, all this stuff that we do, and we appreciate you so much. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And until next time, this is Dr. Lorenzo Neal, and we are out. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed the interview. Thank you so much. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.